Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we get to hear from guitarist Kevin Armstrong. Now this is one of those kinds of conversations that I love. When you talk with like a session musician and you get to just kind of run down the resume and ask, you know, pick their brain for great stories on all the people they collaborate with. Two of the people we've spent a lot of time on here because as you know, they mean a lot to me are David Bowie and Iggy Pop. So in fact, uh, Kevin backed up David Bowie at the Live Aid concert went on to work with him on like the Absolute Beginner soundtrack. In fact, he was a unofficial fifth member of Tin Machine during the first album, the recording of their first album. That's why we're playing Under the God, which was the big single off that album right here. Well, that got him introduced to Iggy Pop. And he played with Iggy on, for instance, the Blah 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 album, which is one of my favorite albums ever. And in fact, he still works with Iggy today. Whenever Iggy tours Europe, Kevin is his guitarist. And so Kevin continues to work in music uh, and has done ever since. Other people we talk about in here are Morrissey, Peter Murphy, Propaganda, Sinead O'Connor, Thomas Dolby. In fact, he worked with former guest Matthew Seligman with Thomas Dolby. That's how we got hooked up. So big thank you to Matthew for uh, putting us in contact. Now, let me tell you, I had really, really high hopes for this conversation. And unfortunately, technology was not on our side this day. We were both on Skype and it was just kind of glitchy. So Yan cleans it up pretty well and it gets better as it goes. But I was really bummed out because what happens when that's going on is that it's really difficult for me anyway, like next to impossible, to kind of get into this conversational flow that I like to get into. And somebody like Kevin, who's done so many things that I would just want to go deep on, it was a real hindrance. Um, it's listenable and you'll be fine. There's tons of good information in here, but it wasn't as great as I wanted it to be because, and because of technology. So anyway, hope you guys enjoy this. I love him. Uh, he called me from his home in Hastings, England. I don't know if you know, but I'm starting to do some one man kind of things at the moment. And uh, you may be seeing a Facebook post or something, but I've just, just started to do that. I've been persuaded to do it. And so I, you know, hopefully I would want to do that in the States one day too. Oh, uh, I would love so, that. Yeah. Uh, someone like you, I think would be the ideal candidate for a, for a tour like that, because you've worked with so many people, every song you play, I'm sure you have some backstory that music lovers would want to know. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. I mean, I do. I mean, I'm working on a book at the moment too. Ooh. And, uh, do you know, I just started doing it like um, uh, about a year and a half ago. I just started to write down some stuff, and it's now it's at it's at fifty thousand odd words now. So it's kind of I'm two thirds away into that, and it's great, you know, because it really you can really jog your memory these days, and the internet's a great resource if you forget things. As well. yeah. <laughs> okay, well, look, I uh, I you know I normally kick these things off with when I became aware of the person I'm talking to, and with you, it was the picture on the back of the Tin Machine album. And I'm still to this day confused. Were you a member of Tin Machine? Were you an honorary member? Were they just thanking you? Why? What was the deal? Well, I, I've thought about that over the years because uh, I, I'd worked with Bowie before, of course, you know, before Tin Machine was conceived. You know, I was there before anyone else mm -hmm. in that band, really. Uh, I did Live Aid with him in the mid-80s and some other projects and stuff. Then I did, I did Blah 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 with him as well with Iggy. And, and then... And then uh, he asked me to be in that band, but it, it, the core of it was already there. Anyway, he'd been working for some time with Reeves and Hunt and Tony, 
And then I assumed I'd be part of the band. But when we went out to Nassau to record in the Bahamas um, for a few weeks and he sat me down then and said, look, I've got this vision for this band. And it's basically the main members of the Sales Brothers, Reeves and me. And I and I so you won't be a, me a member officially of the band. And I sort of took that quite sort of, you know, I just didn't know what it was about at the time, whether I'd let him down or something. But I think it was just visually he wanted to hmm. not dilute it in any way have the brothers and reeves and, and i just didn't fit the bill that way or whatever and he and he said he said to me well it doesn't mean we're not working together again you know we'll work on other projects too yeah. and that and we did and they gave me on the back of the record and and that was that so i very quickly learned that you know he had his reasons for that and it wasn't to do with the quality of my work or anything it was just a particular image he wanted to project with that group and and that was fine that you know i, I made my peace with it pretty quickly, you know I can't tell if that's better or worse. If I were in your situation, there's so many different ways to take news like that. Did you not look good enough in a suit? Were you not uh, well, handsome I, enough? What was the deal? I just don't know. I mean, you know, when see someone like Bo Bowie, I mean, he conceptualizes everything he does. He did that, you know, he, he thought deeply about everything. And I guess he had reasons. I mean, I don't, I just don't know. Uh, uh, I mean, there's no way that I looked any less or more nerdy than Reeves. <laughs> Wasn't, I don't think it was about that. I think he just wanted that. He wanted those four, and that was that. So huh. that, it to be a and that was that. Even though I did the first tour, and then he got Eric Shamahorn to do the second tour, so he always needed a fifth musician. But like like me, Eric was never an official member of the band either. So it was like so, you know, huh. it was just, we were just uh, there for a, for a utilitarian purpose. It didn't stop him thanking me. I mean, there's a clip on, on MTV of us rehearsing in New York where he expressly you know, draws attention to me and, and uh, is very, very uh, positive. And that's, that's really nice. So. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah. Um, I think, is there, I think I saw, maybe you posted this, a clip of you and Thomas, no, of David and Thomas Dolby at, yeah. was it Live Aid maybe? And he mentions you that's specifically? Stage. Well, there you go. And, and again, on stage at Live Aid too. So that's what I think, you know, in, in retrospect, you see, I, I, I always say this and it's, it's true that people who, work with David Bowie, musicians who work with David Bowie get far more out than they put in. It's a mm. great gift, you know, to work with someone like that. And, and the fact that he actually did, you know, on several occasions kind of publicly draw attention to me. And, I, you know, my contribution was no more or less than, you know, a lot of people who work with him, but it, uh, it was very nice of him. He didn't have to do that. And he, he was fully aware of what a great boost it is to someone like that's me, a, you know. Yeah, that's amazing. Good for him. That's a classy move, you know. So when you're recording that first album, you you don't view yourself as a guest kind of coming in to do maybe some overdubs. You, do you are you contributing just as much as everyone else to the sound? I did, and, I did contribute to the sound. I mean, there is there are there are tunes on that record where my 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 personality is definitely in there. You know, the, uh, in the guitar parts and the interplay and everything, and I can I hear it strongly, and that's why he wanted me there. Okay, because I mean. Uh, again, that's what Bowie's special thing was. He, if if someone exhibited something he thought he could use or was interesting to him, then he would just let you free. He never said anything mm. like "play this, don't play that" or everything. He just wanted you there to do add the color you could could add, and that was that was always very easy to work with, you know. Okay. So, so um, I don't regret that anything about Tin Machine. I thought it was great, you know. <laughs> good. I think that out that uh, band and that period of his career gets sort of slagged off over the years as like some weird trip he was on. And it shouldn't be. I think 
you know, if they had called those albums David Bowie albums and he had a different, a new band, no, people would think they were really revolutionary. They defined the entire next decade those albums did. You know, music changes the era that it's listened to, doesn't it? It's, it, it changes in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Some things, you know, at the time they don't recognition they deserve. Then years later, you find some track on an album which has been roundly kind of slagged off or something. And you think, wow, that's really great. Or, you know, another thing sort of fade into the background. I mean, it's like it's the, it's the intervening period and what goes on around it, which makes something work. So understand yeah. uh, people's, um, you know, uh, reticence to embrace something like Tin Machine, which was really a harsh experiment on his part, I think. But, mm-hmm. um, but in respect, a lot of it is really good. Yeah. And it was, it, was, it was a shot in the dark for him. And I think also if you're David Bowie, you can afford some off days. <laughs> Very <laughs> true. You know, you can make left turns and, and that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. So you said a second ago that you you hear yourself in some of those songs. Give me an example of a song on that first album where you think I really nailed that part. Well, in here, in the verses, you hear these kind of uh, slightly, um, uh, you know, bendy, high guitar chords that accompany mm-hmm. the, the vocal in the first verse of that song. And that's my invention completely. You know, that's my, my contribution to that. does color the atmosphere of the track yeah. in a good way and uh, so I, uh, that's that's a that's a that's a perfect example good okay good yeah that's a great song my uh my favorite on that, my favorite song on that album has always been uh pretty thing it's just so yeah. aggressive and i know it's kind of it's probably kind of dirty if i think about it too much but it's just such an aggressively you know driving song Hunt and Reeves could really kick up a storm. They, yeah. they, they really could when it was, it was, it was 
hell on earth. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> it's great. Good. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, were you involved in the second album very much? Not at all, really. Okay. I mean, I think there might be one. I don't, um, no, not not really. I, I'd started a production career at that point, so I was kind of producing other artists, and they asked me to come and be part of that second project. But I I was offered a tangent already and, okay. and uh, doing something else, so I so I I said no. Um, and went my went a different way, you know. I was producing a guy called Kizaya Jones. started out on that path and did that okay okay so let's uh i mean there's a lot more to the believe me you've touched on so many different albums or artists that mean a lot to me and we're going to get to them but let's uh keep talking about bowie since we're on the topic how did you first become aware of him was it through thomas dolby or not aware i should say how did you two first come to work together well it was uh, in fact uh, it's quite poignant because the, the the person who introduced me to bowie just passed away this week no way uh and he was an yeah he was an a and r man called hugh stanley clark and I had been an artist at EMI, and I had a I'd had a shot at being a, an artist with them. And it didn't work out. I was you know I was culled in some sort of corporate thing, you know, where if you're not if you if you're, you know, you know you know the story in the eighties. They signed everything and they made albums, and then some new managing director came in and said, well, this lot could go and that. Could. So I just got red pencils. So did you? You know, I see on this on your record on AllMusic.com it says how the West was won. Is that a solo album by you? Solo album by me. That but that was for an indie label with Charlie Global. The EMI thing was later. Nothing, nothing, nothing was ever released from it. Okay. But what happened was um, because the, because I was sidelined, you know, by the record company, and suddenly I had no deal. With them, um, Hugh was an A and R man at EMI, and we used to get there, and he said to me, "Well, you know, don't despair because uh, there's somebody who needs a guitar player at Abbey Road, mm. and I can't tell you who it is, but you can go along there, and you'll you can thank me later." That was that was the first time I met Bowie because you know, without knowing who was going to show up, really. mm-hmm. I mean, we just assembled a band and and we all he was on the list of people who might come through the door and when he did it was like wow you know nice <laughs> and uh, the very first we struck up a kind of rapport because uh, we did a demo we were doing demos for Absolute Beginners mm. uh, the f- soundtrack. And we did a song called That's Motivation, which he, he performs in the film. Do you hear what I hear? Do you see what I see? Call it. 
I want you to use your imagination. You wake up one morning and you ask yourself, We demoed that. There was time on the clock at the end of the session, and he said, "Well, look, we've got time. I've got uh, a song that's not really finished, um, uh, an idea for a song that's not really finished." And I, I sort of sat down and said, "Well, what, show us what you got," kind of thing. And and um, and then it was me who kind of helped him knock that into shape really quickly. You know, saying, "Well, you should extend this bit or double this bit and put the chorus here," and I just helped him. And then he had a sort of pen on the back of a cigarette packet or something, started scribbling down. He had some lyrics and just a sketch. Mm -hmm. And then we knocked up the song Absolute Beginners there and then, really, and then demoed it, and it sounded incredible straight away. I've nothing much to offer There's nothing much to take And, uh, and I think at that point, that was the probably thought that I was a you know someone he could he he should work with in, in some way in the future. That's so that's what we went on to do live. Yeah, so it was a really lucky break to meet him, turn up there, and then have that little moment where collaborate in some creative way, yeah. and it was uh, it was great. Good, and that's one of my Never favorite Bowie songs too. Uh, uh, absolute, be absolute, absolute beginner. Yeah, that's one of my favorite Bowie songs ever. He's my number one. He's my favorite uh, above everyone else of all time. One of the greatest melody and top line writers in in the world, and, and a fantastic lyricist. And there's nothing, there's nothing you can say bad about Bowie. Really, he was just uh, everywhere, uh, everywhere to everyone, wasn't he? You know, yeah, incredible, incredible. Yeah. So let's talk about outside. You're um, 
you were involved in that a little bit. I think you write that song or have a co-writing credit on that song. Am I right? Yeah, that was a that was a Tin Machine soundcheck where I was playing a song. It was a song I'd written in the early '80s, and I was playing it. And David said, "Can we work <laughs> it up into something?" I said, "You." So, and then, and then actually, uh, after after the second Tin Machine tour had finished, and I had stopped working with him, uh, he, I suddenly get a call one day saying, well, "Do you remember that song we were knocking around soundcheck and Tin Machine?" You know, yes. Well, he said, "Well, it's now the title track of my new album." <laughs> Uh, would you like to come play something on it? And I said, yeah. So that's the last time I worked with him was that with with Brian Eno in London. He just called me because he knew I was in the neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the studio was near where I lived and he gave me the great news. You know, that's the title track of my album. That's incredible. It, and there it is. Yeah. yeah. Had he, um, I mean, did he explain to you the whole like art, you know, it's basically a narrative album or it was meant to be about some kind of art thievery or art crime or whatever did he explain that to you he did he, he did talk a little bit about that but uh, but but um not in great depth he he, he you know uh, i i was unaware really until recently of the real process of putting together that album it was only when last november i did a little tour of england with mike garson and mike and i talked deeply about lots of you know, the, the old days. And I'd never met Mike, even though he's on that record. And, I, and that was the first time I learned about the real process uh, of Outside, where Reeves um, ha and Mike Garson, and a bunch of other people had assembled in Mountain Studios and just basically flowed and, and improvised from, for weeks and weeks hmm. to get that. So that, that's when I returned to form that, that record because he'd done it in a very organic way and taking a lot of time over it, you know. Yeah. And uh, um, so it was a great, it was a great day. I, re I, I strongly remember that that's the last time I saw him. And w it was the first time I met Brian Eno, who's since, you know, he's a friend, and, but first time I met him. So that was a real moment to work in the studio with, with Brian. Yeah. And then David was there with Emma as well, and he just started his relationship with her. And oh. She was a charming okay. person, and they seemed very happy. You know, it was a nice day to work with him. It was the last day to see him because he was so happy and, and you know, uh, it's great. Good. So that was the last time you saw David Bowie? Was that the last time you conversed with him or interacted at all? Uh, well, we had a little bit of a correspondence. My, one of my birthdays, he sent messages and things. But, but yes, that was the last time. Mm. And uh, so that's, you know, and 
since you know in recent years when i've been working with back with it again um at the beginning of that process 2014 i, I fully expected david to show up somewhere do you know what i mean along the way yeah. which he would have done normally definitely and of course uh, the next day, uh, he wasn't there anymore yeah so, yeah it's yeah. uh, still a blow i don't know if we've all come to terms with him not actually being around you know him disappearing for so many years before him actually passing away sort of softened the blow a little bit i think a lot of us who loved him sort of had gotten used to the fact that he just wasn't going to be around anymore you know but you know, you're after, all... after his heart attack and he had some illness after that and I, I think there were you know rumors swirling around and it was clear that he was living a more quiet life at that yeah. point and who could blame him yeah yeah I talked to uh, Robin Clark and Carlos Alomar a couple of years ago about all this. And Robin and I were saying how we we thought that he was sort of like gearing up for another resurgence. You know, he's back there creating something and eventually he's going to put it out there and he's going to blow everyone's minds and he's going to come back and come to find out the thing that he was creating was his own death. You know, the narrative, the story, the art, the artistry of his own passing away. It was like the last brilliant move by a brilliant artist you know well that, that's exactly what it was wasn't it i mean and that's exactly what he did I mean, those last two albums are are fantastic and what an elegiac kind of uh, concept to kind of put that together right yeah. until his last and then and then hit the top of the charts and then die yeah amazing incredible, incredible yeah. thing so i you know i became aware of uh, 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 of him dying when when uh, I just came down and put the radio on. I was making a cup of tea in the morning, mm -hmm. and on, on a talk news show, and suddenly there was this stream of Bowie songs, a medley, you know, just oh. just at low volume, radio, and I just thought, uh oh. So it was a big shock, and then I felt increasingly sad about yeah. it during the day, and of course the phone started to ring, mm -hmm. you know, the BBC and papers and various people because they were just rounding up anybody who had anything to do with. It some story you know mm -hmm. and so uh, I, I turned down all requests to talk about it but then late you know as the day wore on yeah. I, I started to look at the black star stuff and and listen to it and and just increasingly became kind of aware of how inspiring that thing was and then how it actually is to be celebrated his mm -hmm. whole the whole method of, of his going was in, uh, so incredible yeah. I don't think people, you could write a thesis on it you know the whole thing it was absolutely amazing I just don't I don't think there are many other examples, certainly not in pop music, of somebody doing something so amazingly style and yeah. deep, you know, amazing. I agree. Uh, you mentioned it earlier, and I wanted to touch on this because it's <laughs> Iggy Pop's Blah 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 album is one of my favorite albums of all time. And I know that purists and academics would tell you that that's not a very good album or it's a sellout album or it's something else. But that was the one that got me into him and uh, starting to pay attention when I was like 13 years old. I love that album. Now, tell me about the creation of Blah Blah Blah. I'm assuming at this point, this is at the height of you and David's relationship. He's been brought on to produce this album. And I just, again, I just got a phone call. I was working with a band called Alien Sex Fiend, mm -hmm. <laughs> who are distinguished by their lack, complete lack of knowledge about music from 30 years of their existence to now. And uh, they were great fun, amazing people. And I was in the heart of rural Wales in a studio working with them. And uh, a phone call from David, would you like to jump on a plane and come and play with Iggy Pop? So of course, too good, uh, too good offer to miss. And I 
Jay out there, took the guitar and to Mountain Studios, Sandra, and found myself having a beer with E-Pop on a boat on Lake Geneva. No way. Uh, of course, I was aware, aware as a fan of Iggy's, you know, from, from time. From when I was a kid, I first heard him and thought, wow, this is, as soon as I heard Funhouse and Lust for Life, it was amazing kind of stuff to hear. And I knew about their relationship a little bit. So I was really uh, intrigued by this whole thing. And uh, Blah 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 was done, I think at the time, Iggy was uh, a little uh, struggling in his mm-hmm. life. And David seemed to fund that project as a, as a completely a sort of speculative project, I think. And they wrote the songs in Lausanne, in David's house. Then they had a, almost a clipboard of, of um, you know, list of things to do today. Kind of thing. <laughs> and it was... It's quite a mechanical process. Amazing Turkish uh, guy called Erdal Kazilke who plays everything. Mm-hmm. And um, drum machines, it was no drama. It was all machines. And so they, they had a kind of, um, uh, a, a, I think it was thrown together in the best way David could do it, sparing his creative time and energy and money to put into something that would raise Iggy's game. And that's what it was. We did it mechanically, and it was such fun to do. It was really great. You know, we had a great time hanging out in Montreux at studios. In fact, I just went back there. I did a gig with it. The last gig I did with Iggy was the Montreux Jazz Festival about mm. two weeks ago, mm-hmm. and um, and I went to Mountain Studios just to reminisce. And of course, it's a museum now. They've got. I was standing in that same control room where we'd done all that work together. And it's like a sort of, um, it's a mock-up. The, the 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 mixing desk is a model of a mixing oh, wow. desk, and they've got. Models of the tape machines, and then pictures of Freddie Mercury and, <laughs> and David. Yeah. That's so great. it's funny, that, you know. Yeah. So but blah blah blah. So blah 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 was a quite a sort of a very efficient process that David yeah. and and he just put it together really mechanically and did it through it together with Dave Richards, the engineer. And uh, it turns out to have been a great moment for Iggy, obviously, because A and M picked it up. They worked it around the states. We toured for a year and a half, and it did really well for him. Why do you think? David continued to go to Iggy's aid. What do you think is that the heart? I mean, we all have friends and some of us even have had friends that have had hard times and we aren't always there. Sometimes those friends can even be really, you know, trying and like hard to be around in their darkest hours. Why do you think David felt so compelled to continuously help bail out Iggy Pop? Okay, well, it was part of David's character be loyal to people despite what people say about you know early things about the spiders and mars and things like that, that i think that was all that with tony defreeze's manipulation and, and david's um naivety about that but i think he did he did have a thing about looking after people i'll just tell you a brief side story that i met um uh, public enemy we did a gig with them in iceland a couple of years ago and i got talking in a bar to the drummer and he said his name was t-bone davis uh, and, he, and, and then we got talking and he said, yeah, my dad was Dennis Davis. Mm. And I thought, oh, my God, that's one of Bowie's best drummers, right, for young Americans and stuff. And uh, he said, and we got to, I said, well, I've, I've shared a little path with your dad, you know, because I work with David and everything. And he said, did you know that David paid Dennis's medical bills for five years? No way. You know, and, oh, they hadn't worked together in two years. You know, Dennis was ill. They heard about. It. He paid his medical bills. Wow. You know, or, or there are other others I know who shall nameless who've had their kids put through good schools by David. So though he has this generous nature, his character is quite. He kept quite quiet. And the other thing about to say about 
relationship, how that fits into his relationship with Iggy is, you know, people like Iggy Pop and David Bowie and Lou Reed and Patti Smith and Tony Mitchell and all the genius musicians, you know, uh-huh. give up an awful, and they sacrifice an awful lot in that's normal about their lives to be that. Mm-hmm. You know, only uh, concentrate on their own artistry to the almost exclusion of they give up a lot of other things, you know. Mm-hmm. And of course, David Bowie are very, very drunk about what they've, they've done in their lives. And I think, even, and in fact, they were, they were friends, but they weren't brother friends in a way. Mm-hmm. I think they, they fed off each other's energy. They both had something that the other really needed to complete them in a way, and they, or something that the other wanted. So, so for Iggy, but you know, Bowie had that European uh, cerebral kind of artistic thing that she envied. Mm-hmm. And for David, Iggy had that rock and roll kind of magic about him, which David really envied. And I think they that's what fed each other about them. And so I think David was always always felt if he could help Iggy, he would. You know, and that's what that's that's what I think yeah. it was about. He 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 was he, he realized that it it helped him as David Bowie to be partly Iggy's mentor. You know? Got it. Yeah. Okay. Um, now I've heard rumors and you can tell us this is true or not, or you can not answer if you don't want. I've heard rumors that David Bowie was actually not all that actually involved in the project. It was more like an overseer and that David Richards, the engineer, was the one really there day to day Getting getting his hands dirty. It was more Bowie would kind of come in and say, "Oh, that sounds good," and then he would leave. I don't think that was true. Not the time I was there for that. Good. He he was really involved heavily. He was he he listened to everything. He sang on everything. He even operated machinery. He asked me to teach him how to use various drum machines and bits of uh, sampling uh, technology because I knew how to use that stuff. And uh, he was there, right? right hands dirty every day. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't, I don't see that at all. No. Why do you think David didn't produce more? You know, whenever he did it, which was rare, I mean, it's transformer and it's a couple of, you know, it's uh, the idiot and it's this and a couple well, other things. Why didn't he do that more often? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Huh. I can't answer that question. He was obviously very good at it. I think it was, yeah. I think it was more of a natural, natural consequence of him working with people that oh i might as well do this you know but i don't think he ever thought of himself as a producer particularly hmm. i don't think okay. so it was just his natural process i mean yeah. he always had good people around him didn't he and david tony visconti they, these are really seriously great studio um people brian eno as well and and so he always just uh, fed off that but i don't think he thought of himself as a producer ever really I yeah it's just a consequence of him wanting to mentor something or get involved in something for a minute i mean you know <laughs> It was Mark Bolan, wasn't it? And uh, Mark the Hoople and all sorts of people. He, he touched them with magic, even Queen. Yeah. I think, I mean, under pressure, we played it with Mike Garson out on tour. And uh, so I had to sort of go and really dissect that and how it works. And it, 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 it's really Bowie and Queen coming back from a you know, long evening in a restaurant and just knocking something out. <laughs> and that's, if, you, if you hear that, it's so unlike any other Queen record because yeah. it's quite, quite loose and sloppy and, uh, and, it's, you know, and the way they put the vocals together with them both ad-libbing and not listening to each other's uh, thing and then David putting that, Richard's putting that together. That's great, you know. Yeah. That's a great collaboration. I think he, he could always make some magic, couldn't he? You know, yeah, probably. he sure could. Um, now, when you guys created or, you know, re-recorded the um, 
the oh, I'm blanking all of a sudden. The very first song, the most popular one. Um, uh, the real wild child. Yes, of course. such a commercial and this maybe this is where a lot of the uh, derision for the album comes from is that being such a commercial song for a guy as uncommercial typically as Ziggy was it's a Buddy Holly cover isn't it um is it I don't think it's Buddy who is it, is it Buddy Holly Johnny Greenan Johnny O'Keefe and David Owens I don't know who those okay. guys are okay I thought Buddy Holly actually recorded it I'm not sure I, I, I may be wrong about that maybe but anyway, um, no, I, I uh, well, yes, I mean, I guess I thought the whole thing was, I mean, knowing something about Iggy's over before, I thought the whole thing was very 80s. I mean, it, but, you know, you, again, you've got to look at when that record was made. It was at the height of everyone using those machines and that way of making records. It wasn't anything unusual for the time of even Iggy with his page boy, clean cut kind of look and doing his ballet exercises and mm-hmm. having pads and wearing La, La Rocca Johnson stuff and all that. It was a very, it was very of the time. It was a current sound at the time. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's, since it has dated more than some of the other records because those specific sounds really pin it down to a few a few years when those were being used. But so I think it was a, a period piece really. Yeah. Yeah. Now you were on that tour with him. What how was the Iggy of that tour? Which if I remember correctly, this was one of probably several efforts to kind of clean him up, get him off drugs, get him, you know, with a bank account kind of get him set up. How is that Iggy different than the Iggy you just toured with two weeks ago? Uh, well, the Iggy I toured with two weeks ago, and I've been, you know, now now have a have a, have a long lasting relationship with as a band leader, um, is uh, is a guy is a well rounded human being who encompasses both his animal instincts and his, uh, you know, and his business uh, mm. acumen too but i think in those in the days of blah 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 he did i mean he was on his uppers i mean the first gigs we did in sat we did a gig in santa barbara where in a, in a in a sort of back room of a restaurant and there was a chalkboard outside that said tonight smoked haddock and iggy pop <laughs> <laughs> and now we regularly play to forty thousand people yeah and so he's he's he, and now he gets well paid for what he does sure. and he travels in style and he's unapologetic about that at his age. And why should he? he why shouldn't he be? You know, he, yeah. he, uh, but I think uh, that blah, blah, blah thing was the first time, maybe his first taste of mainstream, the pop business, you know, and he mm-hmm. did meet. He met all the arty fuffkins he could. Mm-hmm. After gigs and we were smoking weed at the beginning of that process Iggy and me and and I smoked uh, used to smoke a lot of weed and and he was doing that with me at the beginning 
and he used to knock on my door sometimes for a smoke in the evening. But that stopped pretty quickly. Mm. That tour, and I never known him take anything, any anything ever since. Wow. You know. okay. Now he he now he's like, he likes French red wine, a couple of glasses after a gig, and that's it. And so, like a lot of people who go on later in life doing this, Keith Richards and these people, they they, they learn how to look after themselves after yeah. a while, don't they? And Iggy was just newly married as well. He had a, a Japanese girl, Suchi, was his wife. Mm -hmm. uh, she was very good for him, you know, sorted him out. So I think he was he was transforming then from a kind of guy who'd been quite chaotic before. And when I when I met him, he was already quite healthy and sorted out, I think, you know, mm -hmm. and he was living quite healthily. Good. Okay. Yeah, I've always been curious about that big portion of his life, you know, that period where it's sort of an anomaly compared to everything else. But it's great. That was when I you know, got turned on to the man was through blah, blah, blah. All right, let's go back to the kind of more around the beginning. I, um, first of all, we should, I should establish that thanks to Matthew Seligman, who was on our show about a year ago, such a okay. sweet, nice man. I loved him. And yeah. he was mentioning you a lot as being friends in this conversation. I thought, you know, Kevin Armstrong. And so we have a long history, Matthew and I. <laughs> yeah, that's what he was saying. And so, yeah. I, you know, from what I can tell this relationship on record anyway, comes starts coming about with uh, Thomas Dolby's Golden Age of Wireless. Is that before, well, no, before that actually, because we 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 made an we made an album called Drip Dry Zone with a, a band called Local Heroes. third of that band oh. in 1980 uh, when he was playing with the soft boys mm -hmm. and um, uh, so he was in in my band right right early on i mean i'll send you pictures if you like i'll just drop a couple <laughs> photos because there's a there's a photo of the cover that's just about to be reissued that record right oh nice way. it's a very small indie indie record we were very young and very spunky and in you know angry but uh, matthew matthew and i worked together then and then we then we continued okay with Tom. With now, Thomas. I had never heard of Local Heroes. I, did, I saw it on your resume, but I didn't know what it was. That's why I didn't ask about it. But did Thomas, was he a fan of Local Heroes? And he came to you and said, I think you guys would be great in my band. Well, no. Matthew, I, I, the second album we made with Lo Local Heroes, that was How the West Was Won. Turn up to meet another. 
That's a, that's a sort of two-sided album because uh, one side was the band and then the band broke up and I made the other side alone and it came out as a kind of t dual sort of thing. But, but anyway, one of the tracks on the, the new opium side where the band was still extant, um, we needed some sort of texture which we didn't have on there. And Matthew said, well, I've been working with this guy, Thomas Dolby. He's a sort of electronics whiz. Why don't you get him in and he can add something? And he came in and played some synthesizer for me on my record before we knew each other. And he was obviously, obviously brilliant. He made a great thing on, on, on that record. And then it was later when that fell apart, you know, a um, couple of years later when, when Thomas said, oh, do you want to come and play on my record? Mm. And so, again, a reciprocal thing, but it all came about through Matthew. Okay. Um, yeah, because Matthew and Thomas were, were good friends already by then. Okay. Again, some I worked with again this year, Thomas Dolby. I mean, we went on a <laughs> – he did – he finally said yes to doing a kind of uh, cruise ship gig, uh, like a, one of those 80s cruises that goes uh -huh. out of Fort Lauderdale and goes around the Caribbean. And he got Matt, the drummer, and, and myself to, to accompany him uh, this March. And we went out on that. That was fun. Excellent. I heard about that. I, every yeah. year I'm tempted to do that and I never get around to it. And one of these times I'm going to have to do that. Those cruises are nuts. I mean, they're really yeah. nuts. They're, yeah. The people on them are nuts, really. You know, I mean, sort of. <laughs> They're music nuts, and they spend a lot of money, and they and they decorate their cabins, and they dress in fancy dress. All the time. It's really kind of, it's quite freaky. <laughs> That's what I've heard, and I love every band that ever performs on these things. I need to do this one of these times. Yeah, we did it. With the, tubes. the tubes were on it, and it was great to see them as well. Yes, so many years, it was fantastic. Yeah, I'm a big Tubes fan. We had Fee Waybill on here a couple of years ago. He is one of my favorite entertainers ever. The guy can tell oh, stories. You know, I'm guessing, I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing when She Blinded Me With Science starts being played on the radio, this is probably your first foray into really, you know, yes, it was getting having success, you know, hearing yes. your stuff out there and people wanting to hear from you and having a that, hit. That's right. It was Thomas who kind of, yeah, who elevated everyone's, uh, you know, effort. And uh, yeah, and we got gold records on the wall from it and then we started to get paid you know and mm -hmm. uh, go on tour and everything it was it was it was great it was very exciting it was great yeah yeah wonderful it's probably that's probably where it began i mean has it ever maybe times there have been maybe lean times but you've probably never had to stop and think about doing something different ever since that moment that that's kind of right i mean i've taken i've taken some uh uh, different turnings, you know, I mean, I established studios, uh, uh, very early on. I've, I've been a studio, um, owner. And so there have been periods when I've not been on the road or playing with anyone particularly, but I've been concentrating on production or songwriting or making library music or film music or producing other people, that kind of thing, or running a studio. And I did that for, for a number of years, you know? Um, so it wasn't until two. 2007 again there was a kind of real sort of 15 years where i just concentrated i was a studio musician you know mm -hmm. almost exclusively but i still worked and met with a lot of people and then i started then i got a call from sinead o'connor to go back on the out on the road with her on, in 2007 and i thought well that's a really good you know it's a time to maybe do this again i, I really thought my touring career was over right but of, but of course it it, it re-emerges in a world where live music at a certain level is is the golden way of making a living again nowadays it is yeah there's no money in records anymore so if people have to rely on their record royalty 
royalties or their streaming fees that that runs dry doesn't it right it runs drier than it used to mm-hmm. so i guess that's why the rolling stones are still out on the road and why iggy pop's still out on the road because they, they do it because they can make money sure sure um i was going to bring this up later but it came up now how is sinead um you know i think we love her but we are concerned for her too you know yeah yeah i don't i mean i don't, i'm not in direct contact with her i, I do uh, my john reynolds is a very good friend of mine uh, the her ex-husband father of her first child and producer and i've done a lot and lot of work with john over the years and we still stay in touch Sinead, she goes up and down, doesn't she? she when she goes down, she goes down. Yeah, and then, she sure does. Uh, yeah, so, so she so she has uh, had had a really rough few years, I think, yeah. with her with her, her health. Um, but I hope I hope she's okay. I mean, I did. I, I uh, as far as I'm aware, she's been performing again lately in Ireland okay. a little bit. Good, making some appearances, and uh, and she's gone back to Ireland. For a while, she was kind of really out on a limb, living on her own in the states. Yeah. And uh, have, and suffering, but I think she's back in Ireland. I think she's probably back in touch with her family a little bit more. So I hope okay. so. Good. Yeah. Was she uh, in pretty good spirits when you worked with her back in two thousand six or whenever it was? On and off. I mean, uh, you know, she again. She has a she she mm-hmm. she does suffer from depression. So she the, uh, early on in the tour, she was uh, sometimes. Uh, not engaged in a right way. So it was really weird. I mean, one place we turned up in Poland and it was the first time she'd ever been there. And I think there was an audience of 70,000 at Poznan mm. University. And she and she just got block up on hash and, and had a hood over her head and shuffled around the stage whispering uh-huh. into a microphone in front of 70,000. She oh. wasn't, didn't even... You know, and it was like really hard work, yeah. you know, and also at that time, the Theology album was out, which was mostly, you know, lyrics from the Old Testament set to mm-hmm. two... At sixty bits a minute, and it was kind of wasn't very exciting. You know, it was like really yeah. hard work. Yeah. And but then later on, she started to dress better and take care of herself, and she came out of herself more in that tour. And then she she could create magic like that. She can mm-hmm. weave spell. She's amazing. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, so I saw both sides of her, and I got on really well with her. I think she's a really sweet woman, but um, but she does have her, Just her side. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, going back to Thomas Dolby for a minute, an album that is, I think, a masterpiece is uh, The Flat Earth. And that album gets lost in the shuffle because most people wanted Science Part 2, and that was not at all what that album is, other than... It's a, um, it's a great record. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you like that record. It is, it's, I'm, pr- I'm really proud of uh, being involved in that. It was a yes. I just think it's a masterpiece. It's an excellent headphone record. And speaking of Matthew, he, him and his bass playing comes off so beautifully on that album too. When you mm-hmm. went in to make that, was Thomas, you know, outright rebelling saying, I know what people expect from me right now. And we are not going to do that. We're going to take the, you know, the credit that we just earned through success. And we're going to create the album I want, and it's going to be different. And I don't care what anyone says. I think he was, and I, I, I think he was like that. I think Thomas is, is, is such a clever guy, and he and he really wanted to take something out as far as he could. And I don't think he really um, was ever wanting to please the corporate uh, music business mm-hmm. at all. I don't think he was. I don't think he thought like that. Um, so I, it was really great. I thought the flat Earth. It was a really lovely chance to to really learn our craft mm-hmm. at the hand somebody who was so meticulous and some of his work is still used by you know audio engineers to rinse out pa systems and because it sounds so good and it's 
still like that now. He's still doing that. In fact, he 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 makes a sort of um, amazing answer to a in answer to the question. If you ask him, is there anything you ever would have done differently about your records? He would say no. Really good. <laughs> Almost exclusively with anyone I'd ever worked with, because because he did, you know, work so hard to achieve what was in his head uh-huh. with that. And we were, and he used us in a really good creative way. And we, I learned so much craft from Thomas, particularly about the studio. Uh, amazing, amazing guy to work with. Amazing. Good. Uh, going back to kind of this theme that I'm going with, when you look back on your, on the albums you made with Thomas, is there, now I don't like to, people don't like to be asked. I can tell uh, what their favorite moments are. So I switch it a little bit to ask if there's a moment they're especially proud of. Can you think of a moment in either one of those first two Thomas Dolby albums where you think, I really like the way I did this? And it could be well, anything. Well, I, I mean, I, I learned to play funk, really. You know, playing hyperactive. The guitar on hyperactive, I'm, I'm proud of. At the tender age of three, I was hooked to a machine Just to keep my mouth from spouting junk Ha! Must have took me for a fool Cause they chucked me out of school Cause the teacher knew I had the fun But tonight I'm on the edge You better shut me in the fridge Because I'm burning up I'm burning up With the vision in my brain And the music in my veins And the dirty with the main My blood Because it was the first time I kind of locked in and realised, oh, this is how you play funk, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> you can and and uh, and so that that sounds good to me still. And I I very much enjoyed the way that record was made. And 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 when we were making it, I thought this is great. It's really cutting edge. And uh, uh-huh. even Michael Jackson noticed it and got in touch with Thomas to say he was a fan. And and uh, I loved I loved that. The first record I don't remember much about. I think I just did some overdubs on my own with Thomas, you know, and added things. Mm-hmm. So we weren't in at the ground floor of it. But Flat Earth, we definitely were in the, the ground floor. And we actually routined most of that music in a house in Oxfordshire with the first sort of Fairlight computer that was in the country. And mm-hmm. and we really felt like we were uh, at some sort of technical cutting, you know, coalface, right? Really sure. doing something uh, out there. And I, I love that. I you know, really, really love it. And Good. plus, I played trumpet. I played. Tr- that's you. I played tr- yeah, that's me playing trumpet on. Um, I scare myself.
literally a completely overconfident uh, young <laughs> person saying, oh yeah, I can play the trumpet. And I literally picked up the trumpet and, and blew it. And, 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 that, and I'm proud of that because I don't play the trumpet and I never will. <laughs> that is amazing. Oh, I can't believe that. That's great. Yeah. A little bit of... Have uh, another with the ears of like this guy doesn't know anything about what he's doing you know and right. then and then i remember all the jazz musicians have come up to me and say really cool trumpet on that record man <laughs> you're <laughs> like yeah i've been playing for years i totally yeah. find that <laughs> yeah. um a little bit a little bit of my own personal history so my two oldest kids are 11 and 9 and when they were little we would i would get them in front of the computer and we would watch my favorite videos from the early days of MTV when I was growing up and hyperactive is, was by far their favorite. And so we, I've watched that video with my kids hundreds and hundreds of times. It's one of my favorite songs ever, but it's also one of my favorite moments ever. So uh, I don't know if that matters to you at all, but just know that you were involved in something that bonds me and my kids in a way that's very special. And so if well, nothing else, thank you for that. That's really great, you know, and it's also a testament to Thomas's, uh, you know, um, quest for perfection. Even in visually, he was doing things uh, that were pretty cutting edge visually at that time as well. Yeah, well, and he, he sure was. Yeah, yeah, he, he's great. great so now I don't know you know he's a he's a professor at Johns Hopkins University now. Is he? Is that what he's doing now? I know he's always That's doing something like that. Yeah, well, he's. He, I think he's training. I think he's tra training the first cr crop of properly trained VR audio specialists. Wow. So people can uh, engineer 360 audio for VR systems. And he's, he's teaching that. <laughs> That's yeah. exactly what you think Thomas Dolby should yeah. be doing, actually. <laughs> yeah. And not only that, I think they gave him a budget to, to do up an old Art Deco 30s theater to turn it into this facility uh, faculty that, that they could teach that as well. So he's, he's in, he's like a pig in shit with that. Good I mean, um, yeah, it's great. It's really great. Good. Okay. We got to talk about Prefab Sprout. You're on the uh, Steve McQueen album.
Yeah. I uh, now I should. I'm going to apologize to everybody up front. I have never warmed to prefab sprout entirely. I like them. I don't love them. I know they have an extremely devoted fan base, and so there are probably people out there thinking, "Why didn't he ask him about this or that, or go deep on this or that?" I'm not that guy, unfortunately. But tell me a little bit about being on Steve McQueen and working with Patty McAloon. He seems like a very creative, but um, I don't know. I don't. Difficult's not the best, not the right word, but just a creative person that you can't quite put your finger on. Have you heard the Swoon album, the first record by them? Uh, I've heard it before. Mm. Yeah, that's a lovely record. To me, that's pu- that's more pure prefab sprout than, mm. than what they did with Thomas. Steve McQueen was was obviously their shot at. At pleasing the business mm-hmm. and having Thomas in, and, and Thomas and Paddy did have a very good creative uh, bond and a good friendship, and still do. And that's a great. I mean, many people. That's, I say Steve McQueen. You know it as Two Wheels Good. Sure. Yep. It's the same record, um, but that's the record Thomas did with them. And I was only brought in to, to, to sprinkle a little fairy dust on some of the tracks. It wasn't. I, I didn't have a, a, a big involvement with that project. Okay. okay. So I did a tour with Prefab Sprout after that. Um, during my rela- relationship with early relationship with David Bowie as well, and I was touring with Prefab Sprout mm. um, time, and that was a lovely experience. I still talk to Wendy Smith and Martin Paddy. I've had no contact with at all. I do follow occasionally what he's doing, and but what he does seem a kind of he's, he's gone part, mostly blind, stays in his house and makes records in a cupboard under the stairs kind of thing. Mm. So he he has become a complete recluse. But I do think he's something of an unsung genius. I don't know whether you've heard songs like Love Built the Taj Mahal or He's a very uh, deep guy, yeah, Paddy. That's well said. Yeah. 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 Okay. Just curious. Now, one other thing. Our propaganda is um, a Simple Wish, I think, is one of their the names of one of their albums that I love a lot. But you're on something called Wishful Thinking. Well, I think it was just a remix. You know, that time. That's what you know, I thought.
Yes, that fashion wasn't there for making, especially around that stable of ZTT, Trevor Horn, yeah. um, uh, that kind of stable of, um, um, who's the other engineer? I can't remember. Steve but, Lipson. There, there Steve Lipson, that's the guy. And yep. then Paul Morley was involved in that creatively as well. And they just used to remix and rehash lots of different ideas. And I think I was on what pulled in for one of those and then it led on to going on tour with with propaganda mm. and two members of minds we made up the band but it was mostly playing along to tape recordings because the recordings were so lush and expensive and uh, they couldn't really be recreated yeah live well so they just it was it was a sort of half miming gig in a way. we were playing guitar and bass and drums on top of some some tapes it was fun to do and some of the music was was good some of the songs were good i thought yeah that song do a great song dr mabuza there were some really good songs yeah you mentioned while you were when you were touring with propaganda that um members of simple minds i think specifically derek forbes was a part of that tour yeah. do you know derek pretty well i do know derek pretty well and brian mcgee as well the drummer yeah. okay drummer yep uh, they were they were they were great i mean they were sort of in a way they psychologically they kind of were the dominant force on that propaganda tour because they're such larger than life scottish characters mm. you know they they, their humour kind of really um, took the whole party by storm, which was lovely. And every time I go back to Glasgow, I definitely make it a, a point of, of touching base with Derek and, and Brian both because they still continue to, to be friends. Good. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I just just a couple more things. I, I heard somewhere, were you asked to join the Smiths at one point? Um, yes, I was. Um, I did. I did actually collaborate with Morrissey on a pro on a project. So I yeah, had some co-writes. Did you write Piccadilly Polare? Is that right? Yeah. song called he knows i'd love to see him yes and a song and a song called oh phony which was on a later incarnation of that record and that, that record was bone of drag was like it's supposed to be a morrissey solo album but he was having troubles you know getting up in the morning and and so half of it was a solo album and half of it was a kind of retrospective of other stuff he'd already put out hmm. when it came out but that was that was the period i worked with him but a year before that i did get a call from his people saying could you could you come and meet Morrissey and I thought great I was a big Smiths fan Johnny Marr fan huge Johnny Marr fan and um I went met him and he did say you know I want you to join the Smiths and I had the conversation with him directly and said I can't do that because <laughs> I don't think there is a Smiths without you and Johnny yeah and uh, that's that I can't step into that 
I said, if you ever want to do Morrissey and then have me as a guitar player, then I'll do that. But I can't be part of the Smiths. And he, he insisted that, that that was going to continue. The Smiths was going to continue. Of course, it never did. No. But, uh, uh, and rightly so. But uh, there was a moment when he just wanted to kind of uh, continue as the Smiths. And he did ask me. Yes. That's crazy. I wonder how different life would be if you had done that and that that had gotten taken, you know, gotten off the ground somehow. I, I, I don't know. I can't, I can't imagine it. I can't, I can't imagine it either. I mean, you know, you get a lot of opportunities and breaks in this business and you, and it's, it's, it's sort of what you do with them, isn't it? And what you, you know, you, I mean, I've made some wrong turns too, you know, it's big yeah. wrong turn regret and, and, uh, and maybe I've been offered things on a plate, which should have been marvelous and didn't really work out. And other things just, just happen by chance and they turn out to be a lifelong gift. So you can't really, you can't really tell I'm fairly sort of fatalistic about that. And, uh, I don't really dwell on stuff that could have been, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want, you know, if he had done that, I wonder if he had, if the songs he had in mind for what would have been another Smith's album ultimately became his first solo album, Viva Hate. I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I, in a way that having the um, collaborations I have with him um, was interesting from the point of view of, I think I sussed out that the way they wrote was Johnny's guitar is like, they're like complete instrumentals. If you strip the vocals mm -hmm. off Smith's songs, they're almost like finished pieces mm -hmm. as instrumentals. And then Morrissey, you know, found his flow on top of those. And I, I took the same approach when I gave him some guitar pieces that were, to, to my mind, quite full and finished. And he did buy it for uh, three or four of them, you know, which is lovely. So I, I think I, I, I possibly could have been a collaborator with him if we, if we'd have started out on that path, you know, mm -hmm. but as it was, I did the short period of him with him and then was never asked to do anything again. Hmm. So reason, you know, he didn't take to me. I don't know. <laughs> I interviewed uh, Neil Taylor a few years ago and uh, uh, Neil Taylor, uh, he played the guitar solo at the end of everybody wants to rule the world by tears for fears. And he collaborated with Morrissey for a little bit. I think he played guitar on pregnant for the last time. He uh, was saying kind of similar things, you know, he got, he swooped in, thought that there was going to be sort of a longer lasting collaboration going on. And then it never heard from Morrissey again. And that was kind of the end of it. Is yes, Morrissey a difficult person to work with or uh, I don't know. Um, a little distant, you know, he's a little mm -hmm. hard to get to know. I mean, you know, I think we'd been working together for a little while and then we took a little break and it was a residential studio somewhere in the country in, in England. And, and, uh, and I went back and he was like, you know, oh, hello again, I'll give you a mod hug, you know, kind of thing. And, and, and quite often he would disappear for two days into his room and you did, didn't see him. And, huh. you know, he's quite a sort of uh, mysterious uh, character who, 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 who went to bed with the Guinness Book of British hit singles <laughs> every night. And, and, and I think literally, you know, he could, he could get really affected by criticism in the press and things like that he didn't like it you know yeah. we did a song we did a song called Ouija board Ouija board
With him, and and it was roundly sort of slagged off in the in in the press, and he he got really depressed about it. And I thought, blimey, you know, you 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 got a really thin skin, um, you know, oh. which is what I thought about him, you know. Um, so he, he's always had that kind of reclusive. He's such really a kind of provocateur. Thing. I'm surprised that he cares. He seems to get off on kind of pushing well, people's buttons. It. I think you he know? does care. Well, he used to really care. Maybe maybe he doesn't now. I mean, I read his book and I really, really enjoyed the first part of the book very much uh, uh, about his childhood and uh -huh. when he's talking about tree and everything. I thought it was really well written for a, for a rock autobiog. You know, you don't often get them that good. Yeah. And uh, and then it got really, he got really embittered by the court case um, mm -hmm. and, it, and his book just goes bogged down in bitterness about that mm. and, uh, and then he also he sort of he's quite sort of um uh so we say blunt about almost everybody he's ever worked with and i got a phone call after the book came out a couple of weeks i got a phone call from mark nevin from fairground attraction who'd done an album with morrissey and had this sim very similar kind of collaborative journey with morrissey that i had and he said have you read the book and I said, yeah. He said, thank fuck you're not in it, Kev. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Because so got out of Morrissey's book alive, you know, yeah. apart from a very one of whom was Boz Burra, who must be a very, a very forbearant character to have worked closely with Morrissey for that many years. Yeah, no he's, kidding. Jeez. Yeah, he's a great guy. This documentary about Bowie came out recently called Beside Bowie. It was more about Mick Ronson than David Bowie, actually, but... I interviewed the director for of that movie recently, and he had mentioned the reason, see, Morrissey, even though Mick Ronson produced a Morrissey album, Morrissey was not featured in the movie. And I asked him why, and he said, Morrissey hates Bowie. And I wondered if that had ever come up in conversation. That shocked me, because how that's like, to me, that's like a Christian hating Jesus. I can't imagine it, you know. So what? I don't did, necessarily believe him. I think he loved Bowie. He must have loved Bowie in the early phase. Yeah. But I, his his view was all. I think uh, Morrissey was capable of bearing grudges against people, and I think he did. Didn't he open for Bowie at some tour, and he got a real rough treatment from the crowd, mm. and and withdrew in you know, hurt you know, very early on in the tour, okay. and. That was probably all down to that. There was probably some peak happened where he just, he didn't, you know, he took against Bowie. I don't know. I mean, that's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it really is. Okay. I was just yeah. curious if he ever communicated that to no. you or expressed it. Okay. Okay. No, I mean, I would have put him down as a fan, especially as, I mean, why would, you know, collaboration with Mick Ronson must come out of a love for their early work. It must you have would done. think. Yeah, that's what yeah. I thought too. Okay. Just curious. Well, okay. So I have one more uh, collaboration that means a lot to me that I want to ask you about. That's Peter Murphy. You're on the Cascade album. I love yeah. Peter Murphy. And um, there are a lot of great songs on that album. One of which that's my favorite is the lead off track, Mirror to My Woman's Mind. You came to the lobby straight I shook your hand Felt the heat of a different fate Took some time to take 
Tell me, how did this happen, you working with Peter? Wow, I mean, this is, you know, do you know what? I haven't actually heard that music since it was made. <laughs> that's, a, that, that's maybe a shameful thing to admit to, but it was, okay. there was a period in my life when I did a lot of collaborations with a lot of people. And Peter Murphy was one of those episodes, and it was a very brief thing. I was basically flown out to um, southern Spain to a, a, um, a, a castle studio which is in the middle of uh, the sierra madre or something and uh, uh you know wherever it is in, in spain and um uh, i got picked up at the airport by a very um put you know a guy in a in shorts and a t-shirt with very unkempt hair and beard with a couple of plastic bags with kind of bottles of water in it and i thought he must be the gardener or something and that turned out to be trevor mores the amazing drummer who was with the peddlers and bjork later on and, wow. and he he lived in the castle and looked after it the studio but uh, i never knew who he was until later i realized god that was trevor mores you know incredible wow. and and I, and I don't remember hardly anything about that session at all. Oh. Remember, I remember, kind of remember the place, and and we played for a few days. And then I was on a plane home, and 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 Peter seemed nice, but we never really, you know, had a had a connection or anything. Relationship. Not really. So, you know, I'd be, I'd actually be really intrigued if you'd send me a list of that of titles because I don't even remember what to, what that is. So I'm sorry to okay. be pointing about something that means a lot to you, but no, I, that's okay. Just, I just don't remember it very much. You not remembering it is just as interesting as if you did remember it and have a story. That's the story. So I really, I think that's fascinating. The, okay. One of the songs on that album that got some airplay was called The Scarlet Thing in You. From the world to the dream and fields of light Yeah, from the soaking mud Gonna fly up to the sky To the scarlet I'm 
I, uh, I mean, those are the main collaborations that mean a lot to me personally that I wanted to ask you about. I, yeah. as is probably the case, like it is with a lot of the session session musicians I talk to, I'm sure there are a million other stories that I don't know about, or I don't know to ask or, or find out about. But when you look back on your career, do you, what are some of the things that come to mind? Is there a, is there a, I don't know. Can you tell us a story about when you interacted with somebody in a way yeah. that would just be shocking to us or entertaining or funny or whatever? I, 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 I start a narrative of this when I do my one man show and stuff comes back to me and stuff writing in the book. But I have um, brushed against all kinds of situations yeah. in music throughout. And my life has mirrored the whole uh, sort of youth and demise of of, of pop, popular music really yeah. and I'm really aware of that And it, but if the new things come to light every day in my memory and I don't want to go into them here particularly but I, but even this evening I just posted something about finding a, a dobro guitar in today in a junk shop and I saw that and it's a lovely uh, instrument and then some guy in Australia Julian who I know said um, oh that's like Mark Knopfler's guy uh, the, what he played on Romeo and Juliet and it reminded me that I'd gone out with the same girl who's Juliet in the song <laughs> really <laughs> yeah. oh that's great and, you know, and, and that's that's indicative of the kind of um, connection yeah. that I find increasingly you know with with every time I go out Every time I sit in a restaurant, every time I'm in a bar, I mean, everything that comes through a speaker, I either know somebody mm-hmm. or I've been on that record or I was nearly on that record or I work with that person. Or, and so it's, it's a sort of it's so it's been such a kind of a lucky and blessed uh, thing that I've had to, to, to touch. And so many of those great yeah. people and situations and, and always be learning from it so that those are the things really so i have got a lot of stories about a lot of things and i've got a lot yeah. of connections with a lot of people and a lot of funny stories I, there is a guy a bloke called guy pratt who's a musician who uh, i don't know whether you know about him he's uh, based there and he played with pink floyd he still plays with dave gilmore now yeah. and he's a, he's a friend and he's been doing a kind of one-man thing for the last few years And I said to him that I was thinking of doing the same thing. And he said, oh, I'll come and produce your show. And I said, no, you're not going to fuck up my show. (laughs) But he I asked him how, you know, what can you say about the people you've worked with? How indiscreet can you be? You know, what Uh can you say? So, well, if they're dead, you can, you know, they're never going to that's dead. And you can say what you like. If if you're never going to work with them again and you don't care, you can also say what you like as long as it's not libelous. Uh And he said, if people if it's people you. You, you you like and you still work with but they had a nefarious past and now they're kind of still there you, he said you have to talk about that because they love that shit it makes them seem more interesting and he said he said that he uh, he you know dave gilmore came to one of his one-man shows and he cut all the stuff about dave gilmore out of the show and dave gilmore said to him afterwards why didn't you fucking tell the story you know drunk at three o'clock in the morning and the rest of it and so um those are for another day all those okay. things good lots of, but I, but the thing about this evening you know that's just a, that's a typical thing that i'm yeah. chatting about something and then i have a complete connection with something sure. that i was talking about but anyway it's what been great life. to talk uh, you too thank you kevin <laughs>
Thank you, John. Nice right. to talk to you. And you're in Denver, right? That's I am in live. Denver. Yeah. Do you ever come to the States for, I don't even know how you, other than Iggy, I don't know what you do today to like make a living or who you play with or anything. Well, it's, it's Iggy and it's a lot of um, uh, production music as well. I have a studio in my very nice garden and I'm uh, often asked to do recreations of old records for television shows, all mm. sorts of film things, library things, and producing things, songwriting things. And that's that. And, uh, and the local music scene here is really interesting as well in Hastings. So I, I'm, I'm heavily involved in that. But mostly it's Iggy. And I think Iggy's having a quiet year this year. But next year is his 50th anniversary mm. as, as a singer, really. So he's got, he, you know, uh, he's health permitting. He, he's intending to have a big year next year. And I can't imagine we won't be somewhere in your neighborhood Good. next year. So I'll, I'll, I'll keep in touch about that. And you can definitely. Excellent. Great. Well, thank you, Kevin. You're the best. I really appreciate all of this. There you have it, Kevin Armstrong. I love that. I especially like that part at the end when he was, that's really profound. When you realize everywhere he goes, any bar he goes to, any grocery store he's walking around in, chances are whatever song is playing, he either played on it, knows who played on it, had something to do with it, was in the nearby studio while it was happening. Imagine that, what a life, man. And I have to say, I think I'm sleeping on something here. I might, if Kevin will allow me, maybe Kevin will come back on and he and I can do a deep dive on Iggy's Blah 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 album. I think that would be fun. In fact, I might go back to Matthew Seligman and see if Matthew will come on and we'll do a deep dive on David uh, Thomas Dolby's Flat Earth album. Because I love both of those. Now, I don't know if everyone will care, but I will care and I will love them. And I wanted to close it out with my favorite. This is one of my favorite songs ever, but it's my favorite song on Blah Blah Blah. It's Hideaway, and Kevin's playing guitar on this song. Love it. Also, Kevin has a solo album coming out next month. He didn't mention it on here, but uh, I've been seeing it on Facebook. So if you want to stay in touch with Kevin or follow him, go to Kevin Armstrong Guitar X the letter X. Look for that on Facebook and follow that page and then you can stay up to date with whatever Kevin's doing. Okay? I hope you enjoyed that. I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to do next week. It will probably either be uh, an interview that I've mentioned before with a really excellent Canadian hard rock band from the 80s or a interview that I have with one of my favorite R&B singers of the 80s. I'm not exactly sure which one's going to come next and something more time sensitive may swoop in i don't know but anyway that's what we're gonna do huge thanks to yan the man for all that you do thanks buddy uh you can find us on facebook and like our page you can send me an email the at gmail.com or you can find us on twitter at the hustle pod we'll be back next tuesday thanks everybody